Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm here today with Beavis Schock. This is episode two. Welcome back. Thank you, Eric. So we talked for quite a while, many issues about solo practice and client interactions. Let's get a little more into your substantive area. Not that you have only one. I know you have many, but your passion seems to be civil rights law. And could you tell me why that is one of your favorite areas? Sure. Civil rights law addresses a free society. I'm a big supporter of Back the Blue. I believe in the police. 98% of police officers are doing a great job, underpaid, overworked. 2% of them are terrorist thugs. And like most professions, they don't do a very good job in the police area of clearing out their own problem people. And this leads to events in which the police commit misconduct. So years ago, A friend of mine who I had known and decided to move to Guam to practice law in Guam with his law school roommate, and he called me with a case he had sort of halfway finished and said, will you take it? And I said, sure. So I ended up trying that case in front of Magistrate Judge Nose and winning it. Things went well for me thereafter. I began getting the business. I learned a lot from people who are practitioners in that area. I mean, I've done 100 civil rights cases in my career, tried 15 or 20 of them and settled a lot of them and given up on some of them and lost on summary judgment on a very large number of them. They're very difficult. It is a challenging area of the law where one has to study and study and think and learn and read other people's pleadings to understand what's going on. It is a intellectual challenge as a result, which keeps a lawyer interested. It also is fascinating to try a case in which one walks in and every single juror is against the plaintiff. And let me explain why that is. The jury thinks of the policeman as the barrier between him or herself and the criminal element. And so when we walk into a courtroom and they bring that jury in, I start way behind. And that's okay with me. In fact, usually the first question we say is, Do you strongly agree or strongly disagree with the statement that 98% of the police officers in this country are doing a great job? And in fact, the one who says, no, they're all liars, cheaters, and beating up poor people, get rid of that juror. (laughs) We don't want that guy. And it's been very good to me, this practice, and I've made money, which is great. And I feel like I've helped people. I've worked on a lot of civil rights cases where we didn't get paid. That's okay, we lost. I mean, my contract says very clearly, I take cases where I'm 90% sure I have liability and can win this case, and I lose half of them on summary judgment or at a jury trial. And if one isn't prepared to go into civil rights, knowing that that's how it's gonna be, one shouldn't get into it. And I'm on a listserv of civil rights lawyers, and we kick around ideas all day long on this listserv, on countless emails every day. What do I do about this? What do I do about that? I learned so much from these people. But constantly there is, I lost this case. 
let me tell you what happened, dear listserv members, and help me figure out what went wrong. And that is a great learning experience. There's also the great victories that are celebrated on the listserv. In the area of civil rights, there's so many pitfalls. Just take, for example, I'm working on a case now with a municipality that is known for too many chases leading to harm to innocent people. There are countless cases against this municipality in which the person who got hit by usually the criminal who's being chased, that's how it usually goes down, sues the municipality and the police officer. And it's a dead fat loser every time because of these immunities that are called official immunity and sovereign immunity and the public duty doctrine, wipe them out over and over and over. Yesterday, I was reading these cases against this municipality, reading these petitions and the orders of dismissal and thinking, why didn't that person call me? I could have told him, don't waste your time. There are very small windows and I'm working on one, trying to get through the window to do that, to hold that municipality liable, but it's not gonna be an easy thing. We will hopefully find a path, but we might not, but we're taking the thing. Tell me about your case selection process on a civil rights case. Okay, so this is very interesting, I think. I usually field one to two civil rights calls a day. I got three yesterday, turned them all down. Now, let me tell you how this works. First thing is, I don't care what I'm doing unless it's due in one hour and I'm not finished. I take the call right off the bat. I am very open about my cell phone number. Call it. (laughs) What am I doing to say I won't talk to a potential client? Talk to the clients, answer the phone, be present. They want to talk to me, fine. Or call them right back, getting these calls returned the same day or best within 10 minutes. And they tell me their story. And 95, 98% of the time, I tell them why I won't take the case and I tell the truth. Very often, the lawyer who's turning down the case will not tell the truth. Now, if it's just an oral conversation, I have my notes. I think I told you in the last session, Eric, I take notes during the call and I write, and I told the client the public duty doctrine will indicate the case is hopeless and you can't win, I don't think, and so I won't take your case. And I write down exactly what I told him, which I think is the truth. A lot of lawyers don't want to tell the client why they won't take the case because they're afraid they're going to have a client relationship and an attorney-client malpractice case coming because they didn't take the case or something. Just be straightforward with people. Just tell them the truth. And that is what I do. You can turn down a case quickly without explaining why, or you can explain why, like you're suggesting. And I found that when you take the time and just let them hear your thought process, about these facts will, in my opinion, cause a jury to think this and or the damages. It's a horrendous case with not many damages or you know whatever the problem is. The most common response I get from someone when I'm turning down their case is thank you. They appreciate that they're talking to a lawyer who's spending five, 10, 20, 30 minutes on the phone with them explaining why this is not a good fit for my firm. Maybe it's a better fit for somebody else's firm. And I always refer them, I say, you know, you can feel free to talk to other attorneys, but they do appreciate being turned down the right way, in my experience. Let's talk about how to handle the one where now we've got one that maybe might work. This is not the turndown case immediately. This is the one where I'm going to bring the person in, talk to them a little bit, 
maybe decide whether to take the case. I mean, I've got about 12 open civil rights cases. I turn down hundreds a year, hundreds, because everybody kind of knows me in the community is doing this kind of work. And a lot of attorneys do get the call and to get them off the phone, they say, oh, call Beavis Shock. And I take the call and I talk to the person and I always write that attorney an email that says, thanks so much for sending Harry over here. I did talk to him. I was not able to help him. Please feel free to refer anybody who comes in because the next one may be a live one. But I know very well that that attorney said, call Beavis Shock to get off the phone, which is, that's okay. I'm happy to take those calls. Anyway, now let's imagine we got a live one. I have this 12 point system that I use to evaluate civil rights cases. A trick is if I'm a little uncertain about the person's reliability, make the appointment about 10 days out, two o'clock a week from Thursday is your appointment. And if they show up, that's a great sign. And if they don't show up, that's also a great sign because it tells you they're not gonna show up on trial day. But let's say the person does show up for the appointment and they come in. So I use the following point system. It's a 12-point system, three points in four categories. I evaluate the plaintiff on zero to three. I evaluate the liability on zero to three. I evaluate the damages zero to three. And I evaluate the ability to get paid if we win on zero to three. So in the city of St. Louis, they don't indemnify their officers. So unless there's a way to tie the city in, which is a super complicated area of civil rights law, it's hard to figure whether it's going to work out. They don't indemnify them when the officer is actually found criminally liable, which is usually by the United States Department of Justice. What about otherwise? Well, if it's in the ordinary course of the cop trying to do the right thing, but they committed excessive force, often they will indemnify. Okay. So anyway, we look at these cases and I'm still waiting for a 12, <laughs> but I've gotten 11s. We take those, 10s are close. If you're down to nine, woof, it's hard. It's hard, but just be cold-eyed about it. The worst thing a civil rights lawyer can do who doesn't have a lot of business is get into a case that's three years, tens of thousands of dollars in expenses, and lose. Let's talk about the typical costs in a case you're going to bring against a police officer or several police officers. What typically are you looking at as far as costs? Well, the, one of the questions is whether to get an expert. If there's an expert, that's 15 grand, really, in my business. Now, one of the things about excessive force cases is that if I don't think the jury is going to look at that and go, that's excessive force, <laughs> why am I taking the case? If we need an expert to say it, that's a little different. Now, I worked on this case that's kind of a famous case, the Pamela Hupp Russ Faria story. If you haven't heard of it, I'm not going to go into it, waste the listeners. Could you time. spell her name in case someone wants oh, to look it Pamela up? Pamela Hupp, H-U-P-P. -P. Okay. She's uh, facing, I think, a death penalty charge now for what happened. But anyway... We represented the falsely accused husband, and we got a what's called a police practices expert, many, many years in police, many years in academia, and would say whether the officers involved followed proper police practices given the circumstances the officers were facing. And that is expert testimony, which is super expensive. But this evaluation process I've represented a lot of homeless people and drug addicts in my career. Drug addicts are absolutely dirty liars. They will say anything to you to get what they want, which is drugs. They are completely dishonest. They are wholly unreliable. And that's just the truth. But Hugh and I took a case, the biggest verdict they ever got, my only multi-million dollar verdict. 
We were representing four women who were in drug court in Lincoln County, and they were subject to a what's called a drug court monitor tracker. And this guy was abusing them and saying, if you don't submit to my sexual demands, I can write you up and put you in jail. And because they were in this program where if they completed the program, they'd get out of the thing. And if they didn't complete the program, they went to jail. So he had total power over them. <laughs> Unbelievable. They only offered us $5,000 in the mediation. Well, that made the decision easy. These are very unreliable people. And so I guess one of them was in jail. They brought her in every morning. One of them was represented by another guy. I don't know how he got her in, coming in every morning. I had two of them and I approached my wife about two months before the trial. I said, okay, here's how this is. We got to move them into our house or they're never going to show up for trial. And she said, that's fine. So I brought them in and introduced her to my wife. I sort of set her up as a goddess to them, which she is. But I got them to understand that she was their controller and monitor. So we brought them in the week before trial for the pretrial conference. They spent the night at the house. They all had inappropriate attire on. My wife had to give them her clothes. They spent every night there. One escaped in the middle of the night one time. We had to go find her downtown, which we did. She was trying to buy drugs. This is the definition of the unreliable client. But representing homeless people, I got a lot of publicity winning this homeless case for a guy who was just holding up a sign saying, need help, please give what you can, which St. Louis County thought he had to have a license to do that, which the federal judge said in the first conference, the Rule 16 conference, hey, St. Louis County, I think you got some problems here. <laughs> and they decided to fight it for two or three years, which was what they did. And finally, we got a very good verdict for a homeless man who ended up with enough money to buy his house. He owns a house free and clear now. Mm. But he was, I think, a very unusually self-disciplined person. And so that case went very well because of him, even though he was a homeless person with a lot of problems. Let's assume that you are being approached right now by a law student who just graduated and says, I want to open a solo practice, or I'm very interested in doing that. Do you have a few bits of advice, the most important things I need to consider about whether to do that, or I have an offer from another firm. I don't really want to be part of a firm. I want to see if I can do it on my own. What would you tell that person right now? Okay. I would say, first of all, you have to have enough money to eat for a few months somehow. Now, maybe you're driving Uber at night. I don't know. Work a second job. But what one has to do is figure out who is going to pay me to work? One of the big questions that is faced is whether to open an office. Now, opening an office in a big office building costs a ton. That's the great error. But I think a storefront or using another attorney as a space share situation is tremendous for that. Because first of all, that attorney might throw some work. I'm really big on these personal notes I love handwriting personal notes and mailing them. I write so many personal notes, I mean, at least one a day. A personal note in the age of email is compelling to the recipient. So if a person, you're hanging around the courthouse, you're watching a trial, like do that. What are you gonna do with your day? Go to the courthouse, watch the trial end to end. And surely maybe the judge will notice you. Hey, who are you? Oh, I'm a, just a brand new Minotaur. Oh, really? Brand new minted a lawyer? Well, let's chat. They can't talk about anything substantive, but they can get to know you. And then you write a handwritten note, Dear Judge Jones, 
Thank you so much for talking to me. Now, it's hard to say how exactly that turns into business and a client, but enough of them, it does. One becomes known. Obviously, one wants a reputation for courtesy, respect, self-control. But my experience is that a young lawyer who asks an experienced lawyer, what do I do now, will get a come to my office, show me the papers, I'll help you, no charge, let me get you going. I've done that with a million young lawyers. Anytime they ask me, I'm willing to help. And so there is that people process and it somehow miraculously turns into business. And once you get the business, then you ask a lawyer what to do, how to handle the business, and they'll tell you. And suddenly you're on your way, you're writing these notes. So I'm really big on the handwritten note on the Christmas cards. I have a highly sophisticated database and I don't do them every year. I did about two or three years ago. I wrote handwritten notes, I think to 2000 people. What do you think that means to that client? That means a person with some prominence in the community has written them a personal note. Who are they gonna call when they have a problem? Who are they gonna call when their nephew has a problem? Who are they gonna tell their neighbor to call when the neighbor has a problem? Me. That must be such a shock to the system for young lawyers graduating from law school right now that you know these people skills are not taught. I don't know if they can be taught, I teach a class called civil trial practice, and we do talk about how to make the rules come alive and how the system, you know, the rules really mean things in particular situations. And the students often tell me that this course is perhaps the most important course I've taken in law school because I'm actually seeing the rules come alive, talking about how to relate to witnesses and take depositions and relate to other attorneys on working out discovery, things like that. Your focus has to be not the books. It has to be people and relationships. Right. That's everything to get that practice going. And then once it gets going, one has to have a good reputation that people know if you're involved, that you're going to be ready to go on trial day and you wouldn't have taken the case without a proper investigation, that your jury instructions are going to be done properly. One of the things I've taken to do in all my complaints in the prayer, I write the verdict director. Now, this idea is gigantic in law school. Now, when you're writing your petition, you need to begin with the elements of the cause of action. Okay, I got that. So how many lawyers, there's kind of scratching their head a week before trial. Now, what are the elements I have to prove here? What's first, second, third, fourth on that verdict director? Our answer to that is to actually write the verdict director in the prayer. It's a fantastic idea. I mean, I think about half of it's written down in the rules and the other half is feel, customs, procedures, how we do things that are good to get to resolution of cases. I would add to that maintaining and establishing a good relationship with your opposing counsel. That makes it fun. You know, you look across the table and you're seeing somebody, you might even be friends with them where that wasn't the case until you met them on this case. It is so important to get that off right at the beginning of the case to establish maybe not a friendship, but at least a relationship where you trust each other. And if you can go by the office and yep. meet the person. Agreed. And I oftentimes, I take some food, take some cookies. Hey, I brought some cookies today. I just happen to have them. Do something like that. Or when a guy comes to your office at four o'clock on a Thursday, hey, let's have a beer and sit down with a guy and talk about his family and this and that. And after 20 minutes of that, hey, we got to talk about this case. And so you get into the case and pretty soon you're 
hey, I'm going to have a problem with this one witness. Can we talk about maybe a remote or something like that for the depot? Right. Yeah, that's fine. And then all of a sudden, easy problems get solved. So we can put our attention on the hard problems. Right. I also think of it as creating a buffer for those difficult problems that when they do occur, it's not a prickly mood anymore. It's, hey, let's figure this out together. It makes all the difference. Hey, you know, we're running short on time on this episode too, but I do want to get to one more topic that you mentioned, and it's one of my favorite topics, the creative process. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I'll give you three things on it. The first thing is that by creativity, what I mean is sort of knowing what to do next without being told. In other words, we have to think about what am I going to write next in this brief? What am I going to say next to the judge? What am I going to say next to the client? Nobody's telling you that. You have to figure it out. And there comes this sort of feel for things. So how does one know what to do without being told? One has to be receptive to one's thoughts. One has to understand sort of the big picture. One has to think about what is the person I'm talking to going to be thinking about when I say these words, what's really driving this person in terms of their psychology and all that? So we were being creative in that way, thinking about a problem. That's what we have to do in all of our legal cases. Think about how this will be responded to. And then how do I have a moment when I go, aha, I understand this case now. You know, sometimes a good idea just pops in your head when you need it. Right. But I find that you can't depend upon that to happen. Right. I need to go to a quiet place because good ideas sometimes whisper at you at first. They're barely there. But if you're in a place where the environment is distracting, they'll be lost. I'm just curious as to whether you find that also, whether you need to get to the quiet place to harvest some good stuff that otherwise will be lost. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it's the quiet place. Sometimes it's driving along in traffic Oh, sure. when I'm just pondering. But one thing one has to do is write that thing down. Capture the idea. If you have an idea, I'm Mr. Write It Down. So get an envelope out of the waste can, make some scratchings. You're in the middle of dinner with your family. Hang on. <laughs> you go out to the kitchen, get a piece of paper, write three sentences. Sorry, excuse me. I had an idea. I had to capture it. And the family will go, that's fine. Understand. There's this Buddhist idea of waiting and fasting and thinking. And these Eastern traditions of self-reflection, also in suffering, leads to enlightenment. And enlightenment to me is the creative process. It's when I feel that I have thought of something that wasn't there before. I saw that which was invisible by my creative mental processes. That's the great happy moment for me. The amazing thing about good creative ideas, after you figure it out, it looks so simple sometimes, but it's only after you figure it out. But the fact that you've harnessed that, the idea of making things apparent, again, it goes to communication, it goes to relationships. If you don't know people, you won't think of that idea. I mean, I go back to this idea that as professional people, we're really no different than a guy working at a construction site who's putting up a dormer on a new house. And this person has real skill. I mean, it takes a super skilled carpenter to know how to put those things together. 
that carpenter sees it in their mind. There's a creativity. I know how to do this. And they're banging away and cutting pieces and measuring just right. And oh, there it is. And that is a tremendous thing. And it's similar to what we do in the law when we think about how to phrase a letter or a motion to achieve our client's objective through persuasion. And we're creative in how we present it. We also know what to do next. The biggest thing is that if we're going to be a solo practitioner, other than when we ask an experienced practitioner what to do, which is what a young person darn well better do, but the good person who's going to succeed at this figures out what to do without being told what to do. They're using that creative thought to understand the issues involved in a matter and where the path is. Let's go full circle back to case selection, because I think that's a good place to end this. Case selection and creativity. I would think that this is like the best point to be creative because someone's coming in your office and they're saying words to you. Maybe they're showing you documents and you need to project. Where will this go? Well, they always say the best day of the plaintiff's case is the day the client walks in and gives their story. It's all on their side. <laughs> <laughs> to be a solo involves, to me, a great thing about American life, which is to be self-sustaining and to be able to run one show, decide when to go to work, which, of course, for a solo is 50 to 60 hours a week, but decide which cases to take, to decide how to handle the case, to handle the money. I mean, I'm big on uh, QuickBooks and all these tools to keep costs down. So you can spend a whole bunch of money on your accountant or you can do it yourself, but then you have to work on your software skills. Every minute has to be productive. Beavis Shock, thank you for joining us for episode two. It's been a delight. To be asked to be on this podcast is a great honor to me. And it was a pleasure to speak to you, Eric. I hope our listeners have learned something. Thank you, Eric. Thank you again for joining us. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>